17, verses 5 to 10. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Let's uh, pray together. Father, uh, would you be glorified in all that is said, and would you, by your Holy Spirit, bring vibrancy to our hearts, whatever that looks like today. Thank you that we can gather here, and even if all that is said is your word um, read, um, we can leave encouraged. In your name, Jesus, we pray and trust. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. Uh, I have the joy of uh, preaching today, sharing God's word with us. I encourage you, if you, uh, if you either brought your Bible uh, or if you have a pew Bible in front of you, you can make your way to Jeremiah 17, um, the text that Anna just read for us. Um, but this Advent, I, th- I thought I'd share, this Advent, I began working my way through Scott Erickson's book, Honest Advent. Um, Realize that places of honesty are hard to find, where we can truly say this is not only what I'm feeling, but actually my processing of that. And I've realized that I struggle with honesty when it comes to my relationship with Jesus. In in many ways, I feel like I can be an honest and and consistent person in the places where I am, but um, I don't struggle as much with honesty when I'm speaking to others, but more actually when I'm... uh, speaking to myself, uh, making a gauge of where am I actually at as a Christian, but also now uh, as a pastor. I've been relearning the gift of honesty in regard to where I am with my walk following Jesus. And I think fabrication is, is rampant at the start of the year. We're early into the days of January, and and we can easily be deceived that we know what we should do and where we are going just because it's the first day or first couple days of the calendar year. We may see areas that need formation, but we may also neglect awareness of how we are already being formed in the things that will go unchanged in the year to come. And so as I was praying about a text for the sermon, John said, you can preach on whatever you want, which is sometimes the worst, actually. Um, You can just do the flip through the Bible and stick a finger on a page. It's not what I did. But as I was praying about the text for uh, the sermon today, I drifted towards Jeremiah. Here in chapter 17, and and I believe the whole book, we find that God describes the human condition with more honesty than we do. 
I feel like it's throughout the whole book of Jeremiah that God just honestly speaks not only to the human condition, but to the posture of our hearts. Perhaps in ways that are erring on the uncomfortable, but landing in the necessary, life-saving even. God's purpose uh, in sending Jeremiah as a spokesperson uh, is to declare the need for a renovation of the heart of Israel and for the whole world. And so if you're in Jeremiah, you can turn back to the first chapter, but, but this is what it says. Before we get off the first page, chapter 1, verse 10, this is what God says. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. I realize as I was rereading this that God is not a blazing optimist, it seems, but a glaring realist that sees the world inhabited by human beings rooted at a real time, in a real place, with real things to confront. The word of God causes disruption to our way of life because he examines it accurately, acutely, better than any of our efforts of an end-of-the-year reflection or resolutions looking forward. I mean, four of the six verbs imply this reality of disruption. It's only the final two that speak to the renovation that takes place after the terrain of Israel's heart is cleared and ready to be planted. And at New Year's, my hunch is that we enjoy to do building and planting more than we do uprooting, tearing down, destroying, and overthrowing. I speak for myself. We can easily try to throw new things at our schedules, busying ourselves and overload, overloading the soil of our hearts with more seeds of activities and to-dos than the nutrients of our hearts that our heart soil can handle. We might use words like overloaded, burnt out, exhausted, full on, or packed to describe our insufficient input to output ratio. And in the early sessions that God has with Jeremiah in what I'd like to think is his prophetic orientation week, God speaks of two major flaws that Israel seems to be ignoring. They come in chapter 2, verse 13. God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God calls a spade a spade that he's been rejected and replaced as the source of human flourishing, as the source of the most genuine formation, the well of life to our thirsty hearts. Instead of watering with a hose, we're running out with a single, drilled out and lidless water bottle, expecting the beauty of the flowers to be vibrant. And so while it may sound grim, it is this honest heart assessment offered in Jeremiah that I know I need to reckon with. Jeremiah confronts Israel with the basic idea that longevity of life depends on the quality of its source. And that their homemade DIY fountains don't hold enough pressure to drink from or to water their fields. 
But this is my hope this, this afternoon, this evening, that we would be comforted and challenged in the reality that God, despite all odds stacked against him, offers himself as the source of life to our wilting hearts. And so if you have your Bibles with me, I encourage you, look, Jeremiah 17. We're going to be going through verses 5 through 10, but I want to start with verse 1. The chapter begins with this. We read that Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, inscribed with a flint point on the tablets of their hearts. This chapter begins with the startling, but not the new news or the new reality that our hearts are not as they were when they were initially created by God when God's breath invaded the lungs of Adam and Eve and the inner core of our world. Judah, we read, a people marked by God are motivated by a vandalized heart. Invoking a similar response as theft, vandalism exposes not just an attack, but a personal affront. Vandalism requires a daringly close proximity to an object that is not the perpetrator's. And yet, by the, the vandal's own will, they assume the right of an owner to handle an object at their own discretion. But vandalism does not resemble a thief in that it does not use the thing for its purpose, but rather chooses to, def to deface the intention of its creator. In many occurrences, vandalism has a personal touch, a display of new ownership. It could be a sign or a mark or a tag. And so, like the graffiti that marred a beautiful mural on our street, the hearts of God's people are declared to be chiseled out and engraved with markings from the hand of an imposter. And yet consistently throughout the book, perhaps to our own dismay, I know to mine, even just as I was reading, this marred condition was brought upon by Judah themselves. Their own decisions and actions. Wilting plants stretching out their roots to a dried up creek. And so with this, Again, not necessarily an uplifting start. We, we look to verse 5. 17 verse 5 reads this. Cursed are those who trust in mortals, who depend on flesh for their strength, and whose hearts turn away from the Lord. While our reflex might be to pull away and point out the harshness of the term cursed, we must realize that that this is not a moral judgment as it is a theological designation. It's similar to the term sinner. It speaks less about our direct character, but rather to the reality of our life's happenings as wanderers from God. Cursed wanderers sent out from God's presence in the garden that must fess up to needing, in Eugene Peterson's words, forgiveness and grace. But instead of forgiveness and grace from God alone, Israel has put their trust in human effort, human ingenuity, human capacity. The word used for trust here is a term for worship, that they're throwing themselves face down in submission 
Just as our hands are stripped raw by sliding along asphalt, so we are marked by the source that we fall prostrate before. In trust, giving the whole of our beings in worship. Heart, soul, mind, and strength to humans and not to God, the true source of life, of forgiveness, of grace. I realized that my own prayers are, are often not for something that God alone can give. It's often for something that people can offer me, I just don't have it. Praise, fame, acknowledgement, a house, job stability, a disc golf partner on a nice day. I know I can grow in asking God to be the source of things that only He can offer. A practice that I'm trying to do to remind me that what I actually need are not things that I can actually get myself. They're things that only God can give from which I must receive. Life, forgiveness, grace, hope, faith, love. The list goes on. And so when you think of your needs or your wants or your feelings, the inclinations of your heart, does forgiveness and grace make the daily, the weekly, or even the monthly roster? Are our prayers offered to God for his grace and forgiveness or more for stuff that we just wish we could have? Or stuff that we think just match our efforts in this world. An image arises in verse 6 that may well describe the sometimes aching of our own hearts when we come to realize these things. This is what we read in verse 6. They will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. Those who find their source of life in anything but God will wilt and fade. The place of our trust is of utmost importance. It's not simply a topic for philosophical argument or for an impersonal conversion of someone that we know. We live or die according to our source. All of us. And so God describes in, the, in this passage a juniper, a juniper bush in the wastelands that never sees prosperity because it believes it already has it, although it has no roots. Blind to the good life, thinking that the desert is all that there is. Something that we've been talking about in youth over this last season is that we become what we worship. And so we become what we trust. And we worship often. Our world gives no shortage of opportunities to offer reverence and, and to attempt to be distributors of glory. For those of us who follow Jesus, this can happen when our love for God becomes more informational and exhortative than it is personal and participatory. In Matthew, a book series that we're going to be leaning into in this next season, Jesus adds to the image of a tumbleweed in the desert using the image of whitewashed tombs, decorated and elegant exterior displays that house lifeless and rotten interiors. While the language is harsh, 
It's honest. If the source from which we desire life is dry, then we dry with it. In this season, many of us know what a dry tree looks like. Or we know what a fake tree looks like a couple weeks after Christmas. We know that a dry tree's strength to hold its composure is weaker than it may appear, dropping needles whenever the furnace turns on. It can stand beautiful in our living rooms maybe for a few more weeks as long as it experiences nothing that challenges its composure. Don't try to take an ornament off until you're ready to throw the whole tree out. But we all know that life does not offer us such a reality of undisturbed happenings. But this is the first candid image offered to us by God of a people lacking the living source of water and trying to satisfy themselves from empty and fractured wells that they've dug themselves. But as we continue in our passage, and if you still have your Bibles open, we look to verse 7 and 8, where we're given a parallel image. And this is what we read. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. This is what just causes me pause, that despite all that has happened in And in God's honesty to the Israelites through Jeremiah, God extends an invitation of blessing. I think we need to pause there sometimes. God continues to extend himself and offer himself to us as the source of life and goodness. A life attached to the most lovely and the most genuine of sources without lack and with abundance. Through our trust, our worship, our acknowledgement in heart, soul, mind, and strength, the blessed one we read pushes into the divine and abides. For those of you who've had the privilege of of reading and saturating yourself in Scripture, you might think of similar verses that I do from, from John, where Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Through confidence, we read, the blessed one relentlessly relies upon the God that offers us life as a bubbling brook contained in the kingdom of our hearts. This one, we read, does not fear when heat comes in its season. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Our God reality, our God is a, a God of life. Intentional growth with particular fruit in every environment imaginable. But if I'm honest, it's hard for me to read this passage. Because it's often not my experience. 
or it feels unattainable, or it can appear to downplay the straight-up stress-inducing, anxiety-producing, or insecurity-laden deserts of day-to-day life, whether with people or longing for people at work or longing for a vocation with our family, with our friends. Sometimes this promise doesn't actually seem like it's here. Or it seems harder than these words that we read that we have in front of us. And it wasn't actually until yesterday, talking to my brother-in-law, that I realized that Psalm 1, with similar language, is a psalm that many people read at the start of the year. It offers a similar image of a flourishing tree and a famished shrub, but the ending of the psalm differs from the ending of Jeremiah 17. Both portray the reality of God's overwatching presence. But the last verses in our section today are perhaps the most candid verses of all. God gives an accurate commentary on the reality of our heart. And so for those of you who may be listening and in your heart saying, I've actually done quite a bit. I've read I pray regularly, I hold my finances with loose hands of generosity, but it still is hard to hear the image of a tree that does not wilt in the hot season or break in the cold. And so I encourage you to slow down with me as we read verses 9 and 10 from chapter 17. God says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward everyone according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. God speaks candidly in saying that the human heart, our hearts, in the current condition, they are deceitful above all things. It's beyond any cure of our habit tracking or habit stacking, our scheduling apps, our workout plans, our diets, even our read through the Bible in a year plans. Or our family planning. He is above. He says the heart actually cannot be cured. It is deceitful. It isn't as it seems. Or as we seem it is. Or we seem that it is. We ourselves, to use the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 4, are fractured and delicate vessels. To be filled with something not our own. Clay pots easily chipped and often leaking. All of our efforts to be the blessed tree cannot be done alone or of our own will. And so this is the challenge. There's a comfort and a challenge in this. And this is the challenge. That God says in a moment of honesty, even empathy, who in all of the earth, who, Journalists, nutritionists, political commentators, podcast hosts, parents, professors, 
people who can understand the roller coaster ride that we experienced in the core of our beings. Let's be honest, who can explain that? Who can cure this relentless nausea that we feel when our finances are not up to snuff or when people are leaving the church or when our kids are not on the track that we envisioned for them or when our work is no longer satisfying or when we are lacking in spiritual friends? Who can cure my propensity to turn from God for aid Who? Because it doesn't seem to be me. (laughs) That's the challenge. And this is the comfort. We read that the Lord searches the heart better than any Alpine rescue team can scour a mountain for lost hikers. The Lord knows what growth and fruit look like in every season for us, individually and corporately, as followers of Jesus. As Nicole and I were hiking up on Cyprus this week, I could not help but look at how stunning the trees looked, even when they were deathly cold, frozen to the touch, and bearing the weight of a snowfall that they didn't ask for, but receive year after year after year. While we know little in Vancouver about drought, we now have been tasting a little bit of the cold. Our garden boxes are mostly, if not completely, empty. Flowers are covered or gone from the sight of eye, and our hummingbird feeders, like mine, are swaying frozen in the wind. So what does growth look like in the cold of winter? Or as this passage says, the drought of summer. Or maybe to us today, what does it look like on January 2nd at the start of a new year? But I believe that growth speaks to the continued attachment to the source of life. That it is not that which is seen. It's the spiritual core that that unites the divine, the human, the created. Annie Dillard um, reminds us of a term that, that describes God's holding on to the reins of all things, seen and unseen, felt and absent, excruciating and comforting. The term, holy the firm. Speaking to God wrangling in all of these things, seen or not. True growth is our hearts that have not fallen face down before our own means of success, our own understanding of pleasure, our own pursuit of power or fame, or simply just to be recognized by the people that we hang out with. Rather, It's a turning towards the God that offers peace and hope, that holds on to life, that shows to us corporately and individually what are the needs that we actually have and how we can tap into the source of life. We read in verse 10 that it's according to our conduct, our way of life, our deeds 
or even we could translate this, our fruit that God gives us in reward. But when he says this in verse 10, it's God actually promising to be invasive, to not miss one nook or cranny of your heart or the heart of this church. And to offer himself in ways that actually give life, whether we would choose them or not. Forgiveness, whether we would repent of it or not. A vibrant hope and a satisfying grace. All things that we cannot simply give to ourselves. And the reason why we can be offered water in the drought and promised fruit in the desert is because this this little baby that we celebrate, this Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, is a God of resurrection. We carry around with us the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may be revealed through the weakest points that leak water from our dugout cisterns. Jesus is the only one who can bring blessings out of a curse because he himself could not be sucked dry when death tried to plug the bubbling brook of life that he offered to a people who were undeserving but that he has deemed right before him. And so maybe we need God's searching not in the areas that we have deemed as needing resolutions this new year. Perhaps God wants to saturate all the things that will not change in our lives this year. Our need to brush our teeth or sit down to work, to drive to appointments, to spend an evening alone or an evening with friends. Maybe God wants to invade our talks with family and friends after a hard day's work. Or our showing up to an honest, raw, and unprofessional gathering of God's people once a week. Maybe God's offer of life extends to these spaces. And so in in a moment of honesty together with these images before us and God's candid words, can I ask this question? What are the cisterns that you draw from to affirm yourself and to satisfy your insecurities? What are the stress points in the water containers that you use to offer yourself meaning? Put another way, how might God be extending his source of life uniquely to you in this season? Not in another, but this season. How is God offering himself to you? What are the channels that God desires that your roots would follow and press into as they seek a source of life from the water that only he can offer? What does that look like today? And so as we sit and ask these questions, let me remind you of God's assurance that this is a gradual process. It's slow. What I'm even speaking of today is not something that I'm saying is for 2022. 
I'm saying, what does this look like in the long haul? Not just your roots today, but roots that are spreading as you are a follower of Jesus for years and years to come. I start by speaking on the local level of our own hearts because the change that we can easily desire in this community cannot start anywhere other than ourselves. If we continue to expect things to happen outside of us, I don't believe that they actually will happen at all or we'll just grow in bitterness towards them. That's why we start here on the local, although it is never removed from the community, from the body of Christ corporately. And so, as the priesthood of all believers, we, are, we offer ourselves, our prayers, our words of encouragement, our dinner tables, walks and talks, whether they're brief or lengthy. We extend these as ways of pointing others, inviting others, not to draw life from us, not to draw life from our words, or our meals, or what we offer. It's actually pointing to Jesus to say, this is where life is found. I'm challenged in Jeremiah that often God speaks and challenges the priests and the prophets. Throughout the 52 chapters, the priests who say, peace, when there is no peace. And so I think a challenge for us as a local expression of, of the people of God in Vancouver is to continue to live out this value that we have to be a family. An intentional but diverse group of people making spaces for honest conversation and honest conversations and hope-filled encouragements, to be formed together by the same source, to not simply hide behind the word community because we are a church, but actually to press into the reality that that word community or being the body of Christ implies. That we draw life from the same source, but may be in different seasons of growth, and yet we are alongside each other for the ride. Reality, the gift, I believe, of this passage as we sit and reflect, is that God offers us this truth when all odds are stacked against him regarding our response. we read in scripture that even when God extends himself, he's rejected. He's again replaced. But I encourage us that this image is God inviting us yet again. Promising us that he will re-inscribe our hearts. He will cover over the vandalism. To etch his word, his love, his very self onto the tablets of our hearts to cure the incurable. And so I, I thought I would end um, this sermon just reading through a list of a few words of promises that are spoken later in this book about the posture of our hearts, promises that God makes to his people. And when I'm done reading this, um, uh, Joan and Joseph will come up and, and they're going to play a couple songs and during that time, uh, I'll be up front just 
holding the basket for communion. And, and, and for those first two songs, just invite you to come up to, to grab the, the little packet with the cup and the wafer. Um, and just to bring it back to your seat. And after those, those songs, I'll, I'll lead us through a time of taking that together. But before that, I just ask, as we end, I'll read these and I'll pray. Hear these words, these promises that God speaks over his people as he promises again to be the source of life to our wilting hearts. Even while knowing that likely we will replace him. We might reject him, but still his offer stands. So hear these words. I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. I will build you up again because I love you with an everlasting love. I will lead you beside streams of water. You will be like a well-watered garden and will sorrow no more. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Just as I watched over Israel to uproot and tear down, and to overthrow and destroy and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful that you offer yourself to us in ways and, and offering the things that we cannot give to ourselves no matter how we try, uh, how, no matter how hard we try, no matter the, the technology or ingenuity that we can produce. And I ask now, even as we listen to these songs, as we sing, as we come to, to gather your, your, your body and your blood symbolized in, in a humble dried wafer and juice, would we see this posture actually as, as our first movements in this year and for many years to come of us spreading our roots towards you, Jesus. And thank you that despite our often rebellion, that you offer life and growth to our wilting hearts. Time and time again. In your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.